With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I didn't realize that we owe you. You are responsible for MX Publishing's focus on Sherlock Holmes. It was, it was you that kicked off the whole wheel that is now rolling so rapidly. Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 273. Close to Holmes. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became the stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, it's I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. A podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler. Holmes the busybody. Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. (laughs) The game's afoot as we interview authors, editors, creators, and other prominent Sherlockians on various aspects of the great detective in popular culture. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Bert Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! I'm Bill Curtis. This is I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Now here are your hosts, Scott Monty and Bert Walder. All right. Uh, you know, we didn't acknowledge Bill last time here. He wasn't in the studio with us. So, um, but I thought it was uh, it was worth noting here. Bill Curtis, for those of you who do not follow, uh, was a longtime host on the History Channel, a news anchor, and now is uh, the color commentator at the NPR quiz program, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And um, our listener... Uh, and supporter John Raby was kind enough to send that along from Bill to us. So, John, we appreciate that. Yes. Well, this is I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm still Bert Wilder. Oh, Bert. And, and are you close to home? I'm very close to home. You know, good temper is an estate for life. Don't you feel that? Uh, it's not in my estate plan, but <laughs> I will check it out. Oh, good. Please do. Oh. Well, uh, we've got a great interview coming up here with Alistair Duncan today. And as it turns out, we actually were able to develop some uh, extra material, a bonus material. So if you would like to keep listening after this episode is done, it is available for our Patreon supporters. Just go to patreon.com slash I hear of Sherlock. Or check out the link in the show notes. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support what we do here and get some of that extra content that's available only to iHose patrons. would be our delight to share it with you and to create an additional dialogue between you, our listeners, and us, the hosts. Always delighted to hear from you. Always delighted to hear your recommendations, comments, etc., and you can do that by emailing us at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. You can do it through the community on Patreon. Uh, you could even contact us on social media if you like. Or how about this? Record an audio file on your phone and then attach it to an email. 
and send it to us at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. If you do that and uh, you, you say something interesting and fascinating, well, we'll put you on the air. That sounds <laughs> just fantastic. Or you could be like us and say something tedious and obvious, and we'll still put you on. That is true. <laughs> doesn't stop us. We're not going to. Look, it's far too late for us to begin to introduce standards into these things. <laughs> Alistair Duncan has been a fan of Sherlock Holmes since the age of eight. He's the author of five books on Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle. These include Close to Holmes and The Norwood Author. The latter won the 2011 Tony and Freela Howlett Literary Award from the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. Alistair served on the Sherlock Holmes Society of London Council from 2012 to 2015 and is also a member of the Sydney Passengers and the ACD Society. Alistair Duncan, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you very much, Scott. Nice to be here. Well, uh, we've certainly known of your work for a while. Our friends at MX Publishing uh, publish a lot of your uh, writing. But uh, help uh, I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere listeners understand uh, how you first arrived at uh, your interest in Sherlock Holmes. Oh, you take me back to the age of eight there. Um, I had come down with some illness. There's a, there was a debate between my mother and I about what that illness was. I was convinced it was chickenpox. And I contributed an article to the Baker Street Journal about 10 years ago to that effect. And when she saw it, she said, oh, no, it wasn't chickenpox. It was scarletina that you had. And I thought, oh, OK. But it didn't really make much of a difference to the rest of the story that um, I had been laid up for about a week with whatever this illness was. And I was sort of getting to the stage where I felt human again. And I'd spent most of that week not leaving the confines of my bedroom so I sort of made my way downstairs and my parents were watching television and my mother had just switched over to what turned out to be the Scarlet Claw um, which um, remains to this day my one of my favorite Basil Rathbone um, films and my normal instinct as a child of the colour era was to run away from anything black and white, but um, the only alternative in my enfeebled state was back to the bedroom I'd been living in for a week. So I sort of um, sat it out I, and I found myself drawn in. And from that point on, I watched every week as they worked their way through the rest of the Universal series. And I then sort of started asking my mother questions because she was always the crime fan in the family. And she explained that there were a series of books, you know, upon which these films were perhaps loosely based. And I asked her if she had any copies, and she did. Not too many, um, but she had an omnibus of all the novels. And she had a special edition of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And being a, a child with a low attention span, I went for the thinner book. And so I began my written Sherlock Holmes experience with a scandal in Bohemia. But I got only a few pages in and sort of shut the book in a state of confusion because I thought, you know, where are the motor cars? Where are all the Nazis? Um, sort of couldn't wrap my head around that. Uh, my mother went on to explain that, you know, all these liberties had been taken, as she put it. And I really couldn't get into it. You know, the mental image I had was 1940s, etc. And I could not, you know, in my immaturity, map that to the Victorian story I was reading. Um, so I, I sort of kind of put Sherlock Holmes down uh, for the next two years. And then... In 1984, um, something very important happened. The Granada series began, and they opened with a scandal in Bohemia. So my mother was watching this, and I sat down to watch it with her. And of course, initially, it made sense because I'd read, you know, the first dozen or so pages of a scandal in Bohemia, and I thought well, I recognise this. And the one thing that episode did was it gave me a new sort of mental frame of reference. And I was able to substitute my mental image when reading from Basil Rathbone to Jeremy Brett's, and it made it infinitely more digestible for me. And from that point on, I just worked my way through everything my mother had. And then, you know, sort of every birthday or Christmas list 
something to do with Sherlock Holmes went on there, and it, it very much rolled from there. Hmm. That's fascinating. You have such a great recall about your attitudes and perspectives when you were reading and how you describe it, you know, adjusting your mental perspective to this different environment. It, did you have that? Is that a, did you have any similar experience with other written things that you, you know, encountered first in, on, in the movies and then went back to um, the text? Or, or was this sort of a unique experience for you? Fairly unique. The only thing that came comparably close, uh, same same genre, was um, Agatha Christie dramatizations. So my mother's greatest passion was for Agatha Christie. Conan Doyle, for her, came sort of a distant third or fourth in her list of writers. And around about the same time, the Joan Hickson series of Miss Marple adaptations was uh, doing the rounds on television. And I watched those as well and, and moved on to read some of Agatha Christie's works. And I had a similar experience, but that came after the Sherlock Holmes. So I think maybe my way of interpreting was already set by then. I think the good work had been done. I didn't have the similar problems with Agatha Christie as I first experienced with Conan mm. Doyle. Well, you know, I, th I always thought that the Joan Hickson series was much more aligned with Christie's original vision for the character, you know, certainly than, than other series versions or other actors. She, I, I always thought her... Hermes Marple, and indeed, you know, the way they created that environment. Now, they, they put it all in the 1950s, but um, I thought that was much closer to, you know, and particularly for Christie, you know, you've got everything that's ever been done with Poirot. You know, did you have a, did, did you ever get into the Poirot stories? Not the, not the written ones so much, but I am a, a big fan of David Suchet's um, interpretation. But briefly going back to Miss Marple, I think my experience there was the inverse because I saw a relatively faithful adaptation there. And then mm. I later saw the Margaret Rutherford ones, um, <laughs> which, which were also strangely favourites of my mother, even though she fully acknowledged how adrift they were from the source material. So it's a kind of my Sherlock Holmes experience in reverse. Um, I mean, I, I got quite a culture shock when I saw a Margaret Rutherford one for the first time. Uh, I forget which one. I think it might have been Murder Ahoy, or I think it might have been the first one I saw. And, you know, I mean, I did the equivalent of a WTF, whatever a sort of a 10-year-old, whatever a 10-year-old was capable of um, looking at that. But, um, you know, <laughs> there you go. And um, because my mother was obsessed with crime fiction and non-fiction, but particularly fiction, I spent a lot mm. of my childhood watching all the adaptations of sort of UK things, so everything sort of um, the Peter Whimsies, uh, the um, Inspector yeah. Wexford's um, CAD file. Um, I went through sort of everything you can think of that was being sort of popularly dramatised during the 80s into the early 90s. You know, this is interesting because I, I think about the fluidity from which we flow from one medium to the next when it comes to crime series, whether it's, um, you know, from the Rathbone series into the Sherlock Holmes books, uh, from the books into the Granada series, etc. And just as you've been describing about Christie, I wonder if there are any other authors whose books you enjoy, who you think would make a wonderful screen adaptation based on your experience so far? Most recently, I would have to say Richard Osman's. Um, I'm not normally a great reader of contemporary crime. Um, I tend to find it's too often solved by someone in a white coat in a laboratory, and I find that a little bit dull. Um, and when I first heard about Richard Osman's series, I thought I had trepidation, but I bought it because I, I sort of generally quite admire him. And he managed to do quite a jo good job of writing a contemporary crime story and largely leaving the forensics out of it. So he sort of cozied it up, even though it's um, very modern. We weren't 
sort of sitting there reveling in DNA and blood tests and things. It was sort of um, sort of a crime version of Last of the Summer Wine. You know, these pensioners sort of doddering, <laughs> doddering around without access to all these kinds of things. Well, not really. So the science didn't sort of um, smother the rest of the story. Um, so I think that would adapt quite well. And I th- I'm sure he said on a chat show after the first book came out that Spielberg had already bought the rights. Um, I think so anyway so I'd be interested to see what if anything he was would do with that Um, I'm struggling to think off the top of my head of any other authors in the crime field Um, you go in if you sort of take a small step into the horror field I was always quite fascinated as a child with the books of James Herbert and hoped that they would get adapted and I think some of his books did get adapted but i don't recall seeing them but um other than that i can't think of um any author recently whose work i'd be particularly interested in seeing adapted Mm. and and what was the path for you to begin writing about Holmes? because i think your first book eliminate the impossible was in 2008 when Mm. when did it occur to you that your interest in sherlock holmes was um so rich that you said to yourself, you know, I think I think there's maybe a book in this. It's quite a long wait between the initial thought and the doing of it. Um, so in 2002, I was having a phone conversation with my mother, who was about six or seven months away from retirement. And during the course of this phone conversation, she started talking about what she would never refer to as such, but what we would all call a bucket list. That once she retired, the the things on her list that she was determined to do, and she started running off a few things. And at the end of that phone conversation, I suddenly became rather depressed by the fact that I didn't really have any such a list. And I thought that was quite depressing. Uh, I came up with this theory that we all have, um, I suppose, two lists of things we want to do, things that are fairly normal that everyone wants, and then the slightly more out there unusual ones. So, you know, we all hope we'll uh, have a successful career and a nice house and where everyone hopes that. And then other people have got desires to climb all the world's highest peaks and things like that. And I thought in that second list, I had nothing. And I spent a long time thinking, I've got to put something on this list. And out of nowhere, I came up with the idea, I want to get one book out there before I die. Um, but that was about as far as I got with it. Having reached that epiphany, I thought, I, had, I thought I don't know, fiction, non-fiction, what about? I had no idea. Um, and then you spin forward about five years, and I suddenly had a revelation after a visit to my parents with my wife. I saw literally a lightning bolt moment. Oh, there's something you know a bit about. Um, why don't you try and write a book about Sherlock Holmes? And I thought, I don't. I thought to myself very self-deprecatingly that you haven't got a head for fiction, Alistair, so it's going to have to be non-fiction. And in my career in IT, I spend my, a lot of my time writing sort of, you know, documents about this, that, and the other. And I thought maybe that kind of research mindset I had might lend itself to doing some kind of non-fiction work in the field. So I immediately started looking at what other people had done to give me some inspiration. And as you will both know, there are loads of books um, looking and analysing the original stories or the or screen adaptations and so on and so forth. And I thought, well, maybe I can bring my own perspective to that, have a go at that. So I conceived a rather ambitious scope for this book that was going to be an examination of the canon, a look at stage and screen actors, as well as a huge section on canonical locations. And I started working on it with probably no real thought of publication at the time. I probably thought more like it'd be something I'd privately print and give to a few friends, that sort of thing. But when it started to get quite substantial, I thought, well, maybe this is a serious prospect. And then, of course, I depressed the hell out of myself by looking into how people actually get things published. And (laughs) everywhere I looked, there were stories of, oh, it might take you years to even get an agent. Um, And that agent may not be able to place your book with the publisher. And I just got more and more dispirited by it. 
Um, I'd been on Facebook by then for a number of years and <laughs> like a lot of desperate souls, I thought I'll turn to social media for the answer. So I found a group on Facebook that still exists um, called Aspiring Authors. Um, I joined it and I just put a simple post on it saying um, who I was, what I was working on, and did anybody in the group have any advice about how to go about getting something like this published? And this was pre-liking um, of posts in Facebook by quite some way. And in my sort of, I suppose, childish impatience, when I didn't have anyone respond to my post within a week, um, I left the group in disgust. Um, <laughs> and, and kind of, I think, probably in some mental level, gave up on the whole idea. And then... Only a matter of days after that sort of tantrum exit, um, I got an email from Facebook saying, Steve Emex has commented on your post. And I thought, what? So I went and found it, and he, he'd introduced himself as a, a publisher and detailed what he normally published. And, you know, he'd be interested in having a chat. And I thought, yeah, right, this is probably some kind of scam. So I went and looked up MX Publishing, you know, Amazon and things, and found, oh, well, they do actually exist. Okay, maybe this is uh, worth a punt. So we got in touch and had some phone calls and eventually arranged to meet and talked it through. And, you know, a, a deal was born. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. So talk to us about that that first effort and um and and how you undertook it and what what was the driving force behind that particular topic? Well, I suppose like I said, I came up with this rather grand scope and I talked it through with Steve, uh, who had never done anything like this before by I think to recall him saying that the MX catalogue at that time was a combination of children's books and books that you might loosely group together as self-help books. So this was a big departure for him. Um, so I had to really sell it and get try and get my passion across, I suppose. But then, of course, he went into the depressingly practical questions of um, how long do you expect this book to be? You know, what, what kind of word count are you targeting um, what kind of price point are you looking at you know who, who are you trying to aim this at in terms of pocket wise and i just sort of pressed for answers quite quickly throughout oh i think 9.99 would be a good price for the book or whatever and uh, <laughs> you know i didn't really expect to be asked that question in all honesty and he turned around and said oh well if you're going to hit that price point then really the book cannot be longer than x number of pages and that sort of thing so and all these kind of depressing discussions about sizes of fonts and, uh, and things like that came up um, trying to make sure that what they came up with would match that price point uh, and then I just got on with the business of writing the thing and then I had this rather epiphany moment where I was working on a, you know, a standard A4 document in Microsoft Word and I thought well hang on he's given, he's given me the dimensions of what the book will be what happens to it if I change it to that size and I suddenly found I'd blown the page count uh, by some way and I had a lot more that I was planning to write uh, so I contacted him and said, you know, I've kind of blown the page count. Um, can we do anything about this? And he said, I'm afraid we can't. He said, I've al it's already up for um, pre-order on Amazon. And he said, and Amazon's price guarantee means the price can't go up. So if you make this book too expensive, we're going to lose money. And so I had to start wielding the scissors quite aggressively on what I've done. So I couldn't do much about the canon, but, you know, the canon is the canon. I can't just casually drop a few stories from that. So that <laughs> bit was untouchable, but I started to take the Although there are a few stories we'd like to see dropped from the <laughs> canon. <laughs> well, I didn't think it could, it could be deemed comprehensive if I dropped even one. Uh, I could have put a one-liner saying, I hate this story, let's move on. Um, but maybe not. So I, I, took, I took the scissors to the actors section first. I dropped all work I'd done on stage. And I thought, I'll just draw a line. And I'll start from when talky screen adaptations came along. And then I dropped a few actors for even from that list. And I completely dropped the whole section on locations. And it was so tight that that's one of the reasons why that book um, lacks the fundamental index. 
um, because that's how desperate things got in terms of trying to keep it to the right size. What a, a real uh, trial by fire for a first-time author. Oh, yes. I mean, yes. gosh, that that sounds like a daunting proposition for a seasoned author, let alone somebody who's at this their first time. I guess it's down to the size of the publisher that when you're not dealing with some sort of massive publisher with lots of people to advise on this, you end up having to take on a lot of the effort yourself, <laughs> which, I, which I'm hearing um, from lots of traditional authors now that they're increasingly saying even the bigger publishers are expecting them to do more than they did in the past so i guess that's <laughs> that's just the direction of travel i suppose but that trial by fire directly led to close to homes because yeah i was going to i was going to comment about that because it's clear that having started excising that section on geography and location you then had that material and that is the focus of Close to Homes, but I didn't realize that we owe you. You are responsible for MX Publishing's focus on Sherlock Holmes. It was, it was you that kicked off the whole wheel that is now rolling so rapidly. I seem to have kicked off a few things without realising, yes, I mean, the the direction of travel for MX Publishing and Sherlock Holmes, Steve MX himself, you know, lays that entirely at my door. I sometimes wonder exactly how justified that is, but I suppose I certainly started it. I wouldn't necessarily say I created all the momentum, but uh, maybe that's me being self-deprecating again. Um, but I was also responsible for effecting an introduction uh, between Steve MX and Paul Spiring and Brian Pugh, who were with a, another publisher with whom they weren't happy. And they approached me in the aftermath of them late possible coming out and asked if I could introduce them. Um, and Brian Pugh in particular has gone on and he's I'm sure you're familiar with his quite impressive series of chronology books. Uh, mostly revolving around Conan Doyle's life. I think he's done at least four editions of that, and they did other books as well. So I, I quite happily claim a certain amount of credit for bringing those parties together. But other than that, you know, um, the the MX publishing Sherlock Holmes machine has sort of um, maintained its own momentum without too much input from me. <laughs> but I, I do get credited as kind of, I suppose, the granddaddy of it from time to time. <laughs> Well, it is autumn, and the autumnal gales have blown in yet more works from Sherlockian authors at MX Publishing. New works include books like The Medical Casebook of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson by Nick Howlett, A Study in Statecraft by Orlando Pearson, and Sherlock Holmes, The Devil's Disciples by Richard T. Ryan. There are literally dozens upon dozens of books to choose from that were released in 2023 alone. And if you take a look at all of the new books that are coming, they are laid out by week, even in some case by the day, in the new arrivals at MX Publishing. Whether it's scholarship, pastiche, or other survey work, your need will be answered in the Sherlockian book world at mxpublishing.com. Make sure you check them out today and tell them iHost sent you. Well, let's talk a little bit about Close to Homes, because one of the interesting things is I can understand how you started, well, many interesting things, but I can understand how you started with the cases and the canon and the related big areas, actors and locations and so on. But Close to Homes is is notable for many things, including the historical aspect of it. And you mentioned earlier, you know, you it began, Eliminate the Impossible began, in your mind, as a research project. So when you looked at the mass of location information, what point did you begin doing the historical research on some of these locations? Or has that been a longer standing area of interest for you, uh, particularly about London? I've, I've long had an interest in Victorian London, but that itself, I think, sprung from the Sherlock Holmes. But it, it developed a kind of a little life of its own. But um, I think what happened was in the aftermath 
of eliminate the impossible coming out um i had this deliriously wonderful honeymoon period where for about two or three months i saw not a bad word about the book and then once i got lulled into a sense of false security a few rather evil reviews turned up uh, telling me how rubbish i was which is inevitable you know you can't please everyone um and then that came and went and i sort of missed the for lack of a better word the rush of it all um, because I'd never intended to write more than one book. You know, this was my bucket list item, get a book out there, and I'd done that. But I suddenly found I missed the whole process, and I was scratching around for an idea. And I'd saved, you know, I'm, I'm not a great one for original wit, I'd saved everything I cut into a Word document called Cutting Room Floor. Um, so <laughs> I went into it, and I thought, well, what can I take out of here? And I thought, well, the... I can't really do a book on the actors I cut out. That would seem a bit weird. I thought the one thing that had been completely excised from the original book was the locations, of which at the time I'd only written up about six, and they were all the really predictable ones, like Baker Street and, and so on. And I thought, well, here's something I can expand on. And at the time, um, I was living in South Norwood. I was literally a 10-minute walk from Conan Doyle's house on Tennyson Road. And all around me were places he was familiar with, Crystal Palace, um, West Norwood, a.k.a. Lower Norwood. And I was quite close to, very close to the house called... Uh, Kilravok House, which was identified by Bernard Davies as the model for Pondicherry Lodge in The Sign of Four, which happens to be my favourite story. So I had all these things immediately around about me within a sort of a 10 minute walk. So I thought to myself, I can do this and I've got, I've got access to all the local newspapers on microfilm at the local library. I can go trawling through those. And so what, what kind of emerged from that was that instead of doing a book on purely Sherlock Holmes locations, I could expand it into Conan Doyle locations, ones unique to him and ones where there's overlap. And I took the idea that this would take the form of some kind of almost like a travel guide. And therefore, if this was going to be something that people might conceivably be walking around with, they would want some decent background, not just this building was in this story. So where I could unearth decent background, um, I tried to put that in. But trying to strike that balance between enough information, uh, or sorry, not too much information, keeping it, for lack of a better word, digestible for someone who could be literally walking the streets of London with it in their hand. That's wonderful. And uh, Bert and I have talked about, uh, I, there's a, a set of four, I think, walking guides that, I don't know if the Sherlock Holmes Society of London or the Irregular Special Railway Company put out sometime in the early to mid-90s. Um, you mentioned Bernard Davies and his research. Um, I know uh, David Hammer, over on this side of the pond, uh, wrote The Game is Afoot and For the Sake of the Game. Um, talk to us about other inspirations, other uh, research that you may have incorporated into close to homes and are there any uh, other suppositions that maybe you demolished and came up with your own uh, theories on as far as locations go um, one of the inspiration was um, Jack Tracy's Encyclopedia Shalokiana um, because I was able to refute something in his book because in the version I had at least, and I'm sure you all know this now, but in his version, he had labelled the Annerley Arms from the Norwood Builder as a fictional location. And I found it. Um, it, it, it exists. Um, it is there. It's still there to this day, well, unless they've demolished it in the last few years. So I was able to physically go there because it struck me as very specific name and I thought no, why did he think it was fictional couldn't wrap my head around that um, but I kind of took it at face value when I first looked at that book and then because I was in the area um, that actual pub was I think a 10 minute bus ride from where I was living uh, so that was that was to me a great revelation but then again I'm sure someone before I found it had found it <laughs> I can't, you know, I'm, I can't, I'm not even going to try and say I'm the, per the first person to find the Annerley Arms. There have been plenty of Sherlockians in Britain to find it before me. But um, 
it, it felt quite like a eureka moment for me. That, um, like, it, like I say, it definitely must have been done before me, but it was just nice to you know, find out that one of these great sort of experts in the field had actually got something wrong and here I was sitting in the pub in question. Um, that was quite good. There was another, I can't remember either the title or the author, unfortunately off the top of my head, I think the author's name might have been Viney or something like that, who he put together a kind of a coffee table book of Victorian contemporary pictures of uh, London and with an emphasis on some of the Sherlock Holmes locations. So that book was quite useful because it gave me ideas for locations to go and research into and write about. Uh, and then there was another um, similar tome to Jack Tracy's Encyclopedia Sherlockiana um, with, a, with a broadly similar title uh, that I made use of as well. Uh, in fact, I, I'd, I'd made use of that book for Eliminate the Impossible. And I remember when Eliminate the Impossible got a quite small review in the District Messenger of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. I remember Roger Johnson passing comment that um, I probably should not have relied on that book. <laughs> so giving, <laughs> give, giving away his low opinion of it, I think, um, which inspired me to write to him and start sort of a, a, sort of a, a friendship that's continued to this day. But I wrote to him initially thanking him for his comments and asking if he'd give me a reading list which came back with alarming speed um, I guess he had it pre-prepared of some sort of dozen or so books um, that he thought I, sh I should add to my library and amongst those were Jack's was Jack Tracy's Encyclopedia Shalokiana so, so there's, a, there's a kind of a thread here <laughs> yeah hey. so it, it looks like there is another thread, uh, you know, as long as you mentioned the Norwood Builder and, um, you know, that being about a 10-minute ride away from you, um, you've, you've got another book called The Norwood Author, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and the Norwood Years. Um, where did that come in your uh, order of books and, and why did you decide to focus on that uh, very small period? Firstly, because it hadn't been done. Um, <laughs> I think there was only one book. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the author. One of the many biographers that fell outright royally with Adrian Conan Doyle and Co. Because he decided to write a book that dwelt too much on the first family. I wish I could remember his name. It's quite embarrassing. But of all the biographies of Conan Doyle I found, his was the only one that spent even the remotest time on South Norwood. What I tended to find um, when it came to those years was that other biographers would simply wrap them up by saying he was living here when the stories came out in the Strand. Um, and that would be pretty much it. Um, what he got up to locally just didn't even feature. And I thought, well, Conan Doyle, if you look at his life, always threw himself into every community he lived in. So he must have done the same here. He did in Portsmouth, where he was before. He was members of societies all over the place. And he was in football teams and so on. He could not have come to South Norwood and done nothing. That made no sense to me at all. So... I had a similar experience after Close to Homes and I had to eliminate the impossible that once all the initial reviews had died down, I wanted to do something again. But this time I had no cutting room floor to go to. But I thought to myself, in a geographical sense, I am uniquely placed to look into this period of his life. So I spent more hours than I cared to count in front of newspaper microfilms in the local studies library in nearby Croydon. Going through um, the Norwood News was one of the principal local papers back then. And then I think there was the Croydon Advertiser and others. And I just went scanning through them between those years looking for any mention of Conan Doyle. And I proceeded to find rather a lot. Um, his cricketing, which you know <laughs> you must have expected with Conan Doyle, he didn't pass up the chance to do cricket. His early interest in golf, and the quite riotous time he had with the Upper Norwood Literary and Scientific Society. So there was all this stuff I found, arguments between its members in letters pages, and I thought there's so much here to write about for what was three and a half to four years of his life. And I thought surely people would be interested in the background to the man's life at the very time his fame was truly taking off. 
because other biographers weren't doing that. Um, there was this wonderful expression, and I forget where I got it from now, but it was from someone in America, where they described biographies as womb to tomb. And when you've got one of those, and you're trying to pack such a life like Conan Doyle's into one volume, you inevitably skip things. And time and again, that was the period that got glossed over. When it came to the South Norwood years, they would say, Sherlock Holmes took off, uh, Conan Doyle's father died, and his wife was diagnosed with tuberculosis, let's move on. That was pretty much <laughs> what they would do. And so I was thought, no, there's, there's something back here, Let, let's fill that in. And Roger Johnson was very kind to say that... Um, in when it came to the Conan, portrait of Conan Doyle's life, I had completed it. I think was the way he put it, which was a very very nice way to put something like that because it's quite a modest book. But I I think it did fill in a lot of background that I don't think had featured in any other book. I mean I, I'm prepared to be corrected, but I've not found any other book that's focused as much on those years as mine. Hmm. Yeah. Let's. That's fast. That is. Interesting, and I think you're exactly right. Was that early author that fell out with Adrian Conan Doyle, Hesketh Pearson? Is that's that the one him. You were yes, thinking? thank you. That's the man. Yeah, yeah. That's that was quite a quite an episode, particularly because Pearson wrote really that Conan Doyle was just sort of every man, and that's why he was so successful. And and uh, that was diametrically opposed to Conan Doyle's son's view of their. Their father, but um, back to close to homes. I'm curious. You know, I grew up in New York City, and one of the things that's happened is that city has expanded. Many locations have just vanished, and so there was a period when there was a heightened concern about preserving what existed in the city, and London, of course, between. The pace of expansion, modernization, the impact of the Blitz and World War II and so on. Did did you in your researches come across anything that that you really lamented losing? Are there are there did you ever get to the point where you said you said to yourself, you know, if only um, you know, this had been saved or that had been saved, was there any any big gaps as you put the book together? Not that I recall, but something happened after the book that I was glad I'd written about because not too many years after the book came out, the Café Royal was shut down. Um, and that was a, a big part of Conan Doyle's life uh, at various times. And and you have, I think it's it's after a, a trip to the Café Royal that Sherlock Holmes famously gets beaten up in um, the, the illustrious client. And it wasn't too long after my book came out, a few years at most, I think, that that was shut down. I think it subsequently reopened in some form, but refurbished with an inch of its life so you wouldn't recognise it. But I I got to write about that when it was still sort of vaguely recognisable as it would have been in Conan Doyle's time, and then it was gone. So a kind of an inverse of what you were talking about. I think when it came to the locations I wrote about, I think... I pretty much found them all um, that mm. I wanted to find. I mean, it, it was remarked when it was reviewed, it was remarked that I hadn't really spent enough time in North London. I hadn't gone looking for, you know, Milverton's house or Serpentine Muse for Irene Adler or anything. My focus had been central and south, and I suppose that's because that's where I was. <laughs> mm. I, I sort of kicked myself afterwards that I'd ignored that obvious direction to take it. Um, but yeah, there you are. It, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the end. It's interesting, you know, from the perspective of distant Americans, we get very glum when we, or Louis Scott and I get very glum when we hear that Simpsons in mm. the Strand is closed and the Criterion Bar, you know, isn't isn't what it was. And uh, well, I will um, be investigating the latter quite soon. Um, I'm going as a guest of Steve Emixed for. Uh, lunch in the new restaurant that's opened in the Criterion so we will get a chance to see I mean it should be pretty much all right because it's grade one listed there's very little they can do with the interior but it will be interesting to see how it looks now of course famously the plaque has been removed to heaven knows where 
Um, but I, I'm in full agreement with you when it comes to Simpsons because I only got to eat there once with the Sherlock Holmes Society of London and I've been long aching to go back and then before you knew where we were there was a pandemic then Simpsons didn't reopen then there was rumours it was going to reopen and, and now it's been bought by the next door Savoy I believe and you know they're selling off everything and starting over which is a crying shame very yeah. sad Oh. Well, if you can do us a favor, Alistair, while you go to the Masala Zone at Piccadilly, it's <laughs> <laughs> um, just great irony that, um, you know, the British took over India at a certain point, and now it seems like the Indians are taking over London. I mean, the Indian food has always been fantastic in London, but um, this this beacon of uh, Sherlockian origins is uh, it's just the, the irony that it's now an Indian restaurant uh, really strikes me. Um, and, and certainly given that the sign of uh, four is a favorite of yours, a uh, nice connection there as well. But while you are there, if you can engage the management and see if you can do some research about that plaque um, that would be wonderful because I know at least a group of people over here are very concerned about its absence and are more than willing to uh, re-erect uh, a plaque um, even if it's a new one to uh, honor that esteemed location I will certainly try, but I believe Monica Schmidt has covered it quite well. I think she she, she is she, she <laughs> she's the ringleader. Yes, she communicated with the management quite effectively and sent me some of their responses. But I get the impression that the the management, as distinct from the owners, um, don't know much about it. I think it was gone when they ah. got there. Uh, I think it's the building's owners that are probably behind this. That in the interim between the Italian restaurant that was in there before shutting down and the Sala Zone moving in. It, it seems highly likely the plaque was uh, extracted during that period because uh, Monica yeah. had no luck with the people running the restaurant. I think they, you know, they're just tenants at the end of the day and you know, they worked with the building as they found it, is my understanding. Um, but if I can ask, I certainly will. I'll probably get bemused faces, but there you go. Well, you know, it's sad because, A, it, it's a minor thing. B, it's important to a, you know, a certain niche group of people who have this interest. But C, you know, at worst, it can only lead more people into the restaurant. So one would think that it would be, you know, an extraordinary logical thing to do to plop for a replacement and put out a press release and uh, enjoy the benefits. The alternative, of course, is I, I, I get a copy of it off Google, print it out and stick it to the wall when I'm there. <laughs> as a, oh, do that. I like that. As a temporary, and have a, a photo measure. of you and Steve next to it. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, before we're escorted out. Yes. <laughs> I'll make sure we finish the meal first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of their concerns is that people come in just for the photo op and then leave and don't purchase anything. So what, what they should do is uh, create a plaque that has a QR code with a discount for uh, your choice of entree at the Masala Zone. Oh, this is great marketing advice you're giving. Yeah, sure. You heard it here first. I'll, well, have, the, I'll have the chicken tikka. <laughs> um well, before we get too far uh, off on a tangent here, uh, Alistair, what is next for you? What, what are you working on now? Well, I haven't worked on anything for quite some time beyond um, book reviews and the odd article for the Sherlock Holmes Journal. Um, I mean, I've had a lot go on in my life in the last few years. I lost both my parents and obviously we all got a bit sort of discombobulated by the pandemic and the, the terrible day job um, takes up a lot of my time. And when I give thought to writing, I'm always struggling for something to do. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that there aren't any there aren't any really new paths to tread in Sherlockian nonfiction. They're all all the paths are so well trodden as to resemble swamps. Everyone's done <laughs> everything uh, so many times and trying to come up with even the smallest of new angles is very difficult. You know, when I when I moved on to an entirely new country, the the, the, the next biography, um, it was a real effort to come up with anything. You know, I. I'd come up with some new stuff when I did the Norwood author, but trying to come up with anything new in that period, I don't think I managed it. You know, I could, I brought a few 
personal perspectives to things that went on during that period but I don't think I unearthed anything that hadn't been discovered before and and the same when I moved on to no better place and now it's just a, you know where would I go with it you know if I get a lightning bolt of inspiration then I'll be straight on it but um, I haven't had one as such well, that's, that's entirely fair. I mean, uh, it is a, a crowded market, and there are lots of comprehensive guides out there. And I think when we think about your uh, works in total, uh, they represent a, a really nice range. So, um, and and folks can find all of your books on MX Publishing, uh, Close to Homes, The Norwood Author, An Entirely New Country, No Better Place, uh, and of course, Eliminate the impossible at uh, mxpublishing.com just uh, search for Alistair Duncan or follow the links that we have in the show notes um, well in in closing Alistair I think I may be able to bring you a little uh, certainty and I, I know at the top of the show you mentioned how you had this uh, squabble with your mother about what the illness was mm-hmm. uh, whether it was uh, scarlet fever or, or chicken pox and it seems to me that your mom was probably confusing what she was watching on television on television with your disease so the scarlet claw <laughs> I think naturally fed into scarlet fever so oh dear if only I could get a medium uh, to find it. Uh, <laughs> well, Conan Doyle could help with that. Just yeah. get, get back to Norwood there and see if you can uh, scare him up. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a foolish man indeed that questions his mother's interpretation of anything. Um, and, and the way I saw it, it didn't make any difference to the story. The key thing was, I just, it was an illness that took a week to get over. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, appreciate you sharing your uh, story with us, its origins and uh, where you landed. And uh, we look forward to sharing more of your work with more of our listeners. I hope they enjoy it. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we talked to Alistair, one of his comments was, you know, it's all been done. And so for my next book, um, you know, at the moment, I, I don't have an idea or a direction. And yet his work is evidence that it hasn't all, all, all been done. I mean, look at, you know, the whole, the whole topic of London and Sherlock Holmes has been visited by so many people. But now but close to homes, you know, in its way is, is unique and tailored to today's concerns and eliminate the impossible. And so there's always, there's always more to do. And I love how you have this intersection, this connection between his own interests, his own talents, what he's curious about, which generates, you know, the content of the book. Because, you know, most times if an author is curious enough about something to amass a text that he finds satisfying he or she finds satisfying um a reader will too so yeah i think that's spot on as a matter of fact i was just giving a uh, workshop this past week to a group of engineers um don't worry they all have their thumbs and it was it was about how to be an effective presenter and if you know the trope about engineers is typically they are and, you know, not the most sociable and communicable people. Um, however, one of the points that I made is that passion is better than perfection. You know, even if you don't have the exact words, if you don't have the, you know, the best editing skills, your passion will shine through and create some excitement for other people. And, and just as you stated, Bert, uh, if you're excited about something, odds are your readers will be excited about something as well and i suppose your listeners too the sherlock holmes review is back with articles on sherlockian film and television classic canonical scholarship detective stories illustrators collecting and more in the latest annual Curtis Armstrong tells how his love of Sherlock Holmes and acting first came together, how he starred in his first radio series, The Baker Street Theater, 
while he was still in high school. His encounter with Sherlock Holmes, Hugh Laurie, and Lin-Manuel Miranda when he featured in the TV series House. How Sherlock Holmes crossed into his character in the WB series Supernatural. And his role as Inspector Gregson in the audible drama Moriarty, The Devil's Game. The Sherlock Holmes Review is back, combining great design with great writing, welcoming fans of every age and attitude. Get the latest issue, the 2022 annual, at wessexpress.com today. something we're excited about that's right it's the canonical couplet everyone's favorite sherlock holmes quiz program where we give you two lines of poetry and we ask you to identify the sherlock holmes story in question now if you were around here the last time you'll recall that we gave you this clue to send such relics to a nice old lady implies behavior, something worse than shady. <laughs> okay, Bert, uh, I, am, I am bracing myself for this, as I often do. What, what could you possibly have for us this time? Oh, well, that's easy. That's the case where Holmes trains a chicken to decipher a secret code. That's the case Watson called the dancing hen. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Mm. Yes. <laughs> the dancing hen. No, not quite. No. Not quite. No. Um, Eric Deckers is back. Hooray! And by the way, Hooray! he communicated with me that there was some glitch in the Matrix. He had sent in his previous canonical couplet response, but for some reason it didn't transmit all the way here. So uh, I never saw it. Uh, and uh, he says, I, I think I've solved this one, and hopefully in plenty of time. It's the story Watson called, That's the Last Time I Order Anything from Amazon Prime. <laughs> no, no, he said that doesn't sound right. Of course, nothing really sounds right to our two victims anymore, because it's the cardboard box. Mm. Yes, I, I, I remember the last words of Susan Cushing, which were, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, okay, well, let's, uh, I'll tell you what, let's bring out the big prize wheel and give it a spin. All right, here we go. Slowing down and landing on uh, number 19. And that looks like it is our pal, Charlie Blankstein. Hooray! Hey, Charlie. Excellent. So we have uh, something in the way of Christopher Morley coming to you. So uh, that should be interesting. I don't know how many Morley-esque items uh, we could possibly come up with. Uh, but we'll see. I'm, I'm sure we can dig through the vaults here and find something that works for us. But in the meantime, we have another canonical couplet. And here it is for your listening and quizzical pleasure. It's hard to find a workable deterrent for cluxers, both historical and current. If you know the answer to this episode's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. And we do have a copy of Close to Homes available for our winner this time around. So if you are interested in what Alistair just had to share with us, then please, by all means, uh, take a shot at the canonical couplet. Hmm. Whoa, 
that's official. That's <laughs> official. It means there must be some Sherlockian news in the headlines. And that's why we're here. Okay, Bert. Shall, yes. we get, shall we get down to the headlines? Oh, yes. Well, the Beacon Society has announced its 2023 Nancy Springer Creative Writing Contest. Mm. And that honors the author of the Enola Home series who joined us on I Hear of Sherlock back a year ago, actually, back in September. Oh, no, three years ago, back <laughs> in September of 2020. Yeah. Uh, and that... Uh, has prizes for the best original Sherlock Holmes story written by a student in grades 7 through 12. And so that's grand that the 2023 Nancy Springer Creative Writing Contest has begun. It really is. And, um, you know, if you haven't listened to that episode with Nancy Springer, I think it was episode 200. Um, it, it still remains one of my favorite interviews because she was just so introspective and uh, revealing about the writing process and you know her own uh, struggles and successes and mm. uh, how appropriate that it was uh, about a young woman who is coming into her own, Enola Holmes. Yeah. So highly recommend you checking out that episode. Well, and, and again, we'll have links to... Um, all of these stories, as well as these episodes in the show notes. Um, it looks like, speaking of locations, uh, that if you are on your way up to Edinburgh, you can once again see the Sherlock Holmes statue. It has returned to Picardy Place. This is a, a life-sized bronze sculpture by Gerald Ogilvy Lang, and it had originally been installed in Picardy Place in 1991. And this is where Conan Doyle was born. Um, but it was placed in storage when they had to redevelop the traffic island uh, on the street. And since then, it's been refurbished and now welcomed back by members of the local council, as well as Tanya Hensel, who designed the Conan Doyle Tartan and Barry Young of the Sherlock Holmes Society of Scotland. You can read all about the process at uh, the Edinburgh Reporter. And just for our Patreon supporters, we have a video of the uh, rededication, reinstallation of the Sherlock Holmes statue. So you might want to check that out. Hmm. And then coming up on BBC Two in November, and for those of you who are not in England, don't worry, because inevitably this will be coming to the United States. It's Lucy Worsley. Lucy Worsley is a, oh, sort of a royal historian, a great television presenter. Many of her programs, Royal Myths and Secrets and others, Queen Victoria at Kensington Palace, have been broadcast in the States on public broadcasting. And there are many clips of things that Lucy Worsley has done on YouTube. But her program on Sherlock Holmes, Lucy Worsley on Holmes versus Doyle, a three-part series, according to the Bradford Telegraph and Argus, uh, is going to be on, the, on BBC Two in November. And scenes for the third episode, which will include the great case of the Cottingley Fairies, have already been filmed at Cotting, Cottingley Beck. And she has a blog, Why I Love Sherlock Holmes, which you can find. We'll put the link in the show notes, but it's at lucyworsley.com, basically, why I, slash Why I Love Sherlock Holmes. And as I say, you know, it's likely that this will be gracing us on Netflix or PBS uh, prior, after it's um, broadcast in the UK. Yeah, look forward to that. And um, we have reached out to Lucy to ask if she would uh, care to be interviewed here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. We have yet to hear back, but we will keep you updated on any developments there. And uh, finally, uh, wrapping things up here, uh, Rolling Stones drummer uh, Charlie Watts uh, passed away uh, last year. And... Um, he was, believe it or not, uh, a collector of first editions, and his collection went under the hammer at uh, Christie's 
as part of a specialized sale, and that was that included uh, the first editions of uh, The Great Gatsby, um, as well as other titles. But the one in question here is a first edition of The Hound of the Baskervilles, and not because this was. Uh, just the hound, but it, because it was Charlie Watts's hound, uh, it actually broke the record, uh, auction record for a printed book by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Any guess, Bert, as to how much this went for at auction? Oh, first edition hound, probably thirty nine, forty nine, ninety five. In, in. Uh, I think 187,000 monthly payments. Yes. <laughs> um, now less, few, fewer than that. But um, the uh, the final price was 214,200 pounds. That hmm. that is a record, and it surpassed the previous record for a Conan Doyle book, which was the Sign of Four, which came in at 165,279 pounds. Hmm. Now, so, do we any indication of who bought this? Uh, they did not give that away. Um, so it's certainly possible that it will be arriving at your house soon. It is neither possible nor probable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I made that purchase, I would be in Charlie Watts's position now. <laughs> Fair to say. Well, uh, let's close up the news bag here. I think that's all the news that fits in this podcast. But as other news breaks, we will try to have it for you here in the news section of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere in our very next episode. I suppose if you have uh, items that you believe are newsworthy for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, please send them our way. Just shoot them in an email to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com or flag us on social media. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and now on threads as I Hear of Sherlock. We'd be delighted to have you connect with us in any one of those places. Well, Bert, um, any, any final words of, of wisdom for us? <laughs> <laughs> Buy low, sell high. Oh, that's a good one. Yep. Yeah, universal. I've been doing it wrong all these years. That's what it is. Yeah. Do you know that I am the father of the non sequitur? <laughs> You're supposed to say really. Uh, really? Platform shoes. <laughs> I was going to ask who the mother was, but... <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to intrude in your private life. <laughs> Goodness gracious! Well, this is the non sequitarian Scott Monty, and I am the sequi sequispedalian Bert Wolder, and together we say. The, the games, games of foot. foot. <laughs> the, the games of foot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.